Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast, The Irish Examiner. Grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre, unprecedented. These were the words used over 40 years ago to describe a scandal that traversed from crime into the political arena. The occasion was the arrest in the Attorney General's home of a man who was wanted for two really brutal murders. The suspect was located following some solid police work And while the main thrust of the Guard's investigation was at a close, a political scandal was about to erupt. And the man at the centre of political life at the time, Charles J. Hawhey, was to find himself at the vortex of another hurricane. This one for once, or certainly rarely, uh, not of his own making. The times and the crimes at the heart of this matter are now captured in a book that one reviewer has described as reading like a thriller. Harry McGee is the author of The Murderer and the Taoiseach, and he joins me now. Harry, you're very welcome. Hiya, Mick. How are you keeping? I'm good, thanks. Harry, those of a a certain age, and I think it's safe to say we are both of that certain age, will be somewhat familiar with the background of this. But in general, um, before we get into what exactly it was, what prompted you to delve back into this area of history? Well, it was one of those stories, Mick, that kind of changed things for me that really, you know, it was such an extraordinary series of events and it was so sensational that it was one of those forming influences for me when I was a teenager and I was probably becoming aware of current affairs that summer. I started reading McGill magazine. I was probably trying to read uh, newspapers as well, perhaps with with a little less success. They were less racy now in terms of their prose uh, than they are now. But I was becoming interested in politics, in the personalities that was involved in northern conflict, the nascent problems with crime and with drugs in Dublin. And in the middle of this, this story kind of just... You know, it it was like an earthquake. It just kind of erupted in the middle of that scorched summer of 1982. And uh, it just changed perspectives for me. I suppose it's a little, for me, in, in one sense, it was a little bit like kind of reading, you know, Frank O'Connor's Guests of the Nation for the first time or reading Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger for the first time. Something happens that you experience and it forever after kind of changes your perspective on things. So that extraordinary story that happened at that particular time in my life stayed with me and has stayed with me throughout my uh, life. Uh, My first assignment in journalism in Dublin when I moved here in 1992 from that uh, wonderful city in the west of Ireland, Galway, which, uh, yeah, uh, when I moved to Dublin, the first story I wrote was a story that looked back on the whole Gubu affair 10 years afterwards. And I interviewed many of the personalities who were involved, some of whom are no longer with us, and spoke to them about it and uh, have more or less kind of, you know, remembered it or kind of kept it fresh in my mind over the subsequent years. So last year, 
I was kind of intent on doing a, a long form podcast. And just at the beginning of last year, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, we're coming up to the 40th anniversary of Gubu. It might be interesting to see if, you know, it's worth doing a podcast on it so people who remember it can have their memories refreshed of the extraordinary events that happened. And those who don't remember it, i.e. anybody born after 1975, certainly, but those especially born in the 90s and into the new century would be able to become familiar with this uh, extraordinary, and I've used extraordinary about three or four times already, episode in Irish political history and in Irish life. Yes, Harry, there's no question about that. I think anybody who's anyway familiar with it would very much see exactly where you're coming from. Now, the person at the centre of it, and you've used the word extraordinary, I think it's one word, and there are others, um, perhaps not as nice words one might say, would would be used to describe the man at the centre of it, Malcolm MacArthur. Tell me a bit about his background. Yeah, he was certainly an exotic but deadly species, uh, especially in Ireland in 1982. I've likened him a little bit to kind of almost like a false widow spider, you know, something that was kind of unusual, but was also very dangerous and very deadly. He came from County Meath, but not from the kind of background in County Meath that you'd expect. His parents were both from very prosperous land-owning families. In fact, the MacArthur's had only moved into Meath at the beginning of the last century. They were a moneyed family from Scotland who decided to move over to Meath. They bought a, a sumptuous Georgian house there called uh, Bremont with a big estate of lands. They were very wealthy, uh, uh, certainly at the beginning of the last century. Uh, what marked them out from the other land-owning families in County Mead is that they were a Catholic and very staunchly Catholic family on, on both sides. So Malcolm's uh, dad, uh, Daniel, who was the youngest of the children and who inherited the farm and the house, was a very devout Catholic and was a uh, mass goer all his life. Malcolm was an only son. Um, his father owned the estate. His mother was from a family called the Murrays from Tandragee, who owned huge tracts of land in West Meath and in County Meath, also a Catholic. They married in the early 1940s and Daniel, an only child, was born in 1946. He was certainly uh, an outlier as far as other kids in Meath were concerned. He had a governess when he was quite young. He grew up uh, in a very affluent household where they had people helping on the farm, they had staff in the house, there was a housekeeper. He himself had a nanny uh, or governess when he was small and before he went to school, first locally. Now, there seems to have been a, a bit of a dip in the family fortunes in the 1950s uh, during a time of economic hardship in Ireland. He was meant to have gone to school to Ampleforth, which is the very expensive Benedictine Abbey in Yorkshire but for some reason that fell through and he ended up going to the local school the Christian Brothers School in Trim where he kind of stood out a little bit uh, from his classmates he had no interest in sport he, he was, he was uh, obviously had a, a grander accent than uh, some of his classmates and was kind of a guy who, who stuck to himself he wouldn't have been laddish or he wouldn't have been hanging around with the other guys once he finished his education there, he went to America where an uncle lived in California and he ended up in a small college called Davis in California, which was part of the University of California, 
where he'd got a degree in economics in 1967. Now, 1967 was the beginning of kind of flower power in San Francisco and in California. And there were plenty of hippies on the campus when he was there, but he seemed to be going the other way. He uh, began to dress in tweeds, began to wear cravats and dicky bows, dressed in a kind of very raffish kind of bohemian way uh, with tweeds and with polished brogues and what have you. He also had a cut glass accent, uh, what sometimes is disparagingly known as a West Brit accent here in Ireland. So that certainly set him apart from uh, the crowd. So he came back to Ireland and didn't really want to, didn't feel inclined to work. He, he, he is said to have registered for a course in Trinity, a postgrad course that he never did. And uh, he spent a lot of time hanging around Dublin, going to libraries, going to cafes, going to uh, bars. Uh, his father tried to put pressure on him to find a job, but he didn't seem inclined to want to work. So he probably led a fairly Spartan kind of bohemian existence for the first couple of years living between Meath and Dublin. It might, must be said also that when he was growing up, his parents had a very volatile marriage. They split up when he was 16 or 17, but both seemed to be particularly distant towards Malcolm and, you know, all of the anecdotes that emanated from County Meath painted a picture of a solitary child, of a lonely child, of a shy child, of a person who didn't speak very much and who was somewhat neglected by his parents. Now, I don't know if too much was made of those in terms of trying to explain what kind of guy he was, but that's certainly evident from his childhood. So the big turn of fortune came for him in the early 1970s when his father died at a comparatively young age, at the age of 60 or 61, and left Malcolm with the Fremont, which was the Georgian house, plus the farm. So he sold both the house and the farm and came into a considerable fortune. Um, it was really the equivalent of well over a million euro, perhaps even up to two million euro in today's terms. So that allowed him to set himself up really as a gentleman about town. He had a flat in Dublin. He went to Cambridge frequently. He travelled abroad frequently. He hung around uh, fashionable bars and cafes during the 1970s. And everybody who knew him thought that he was an academic of some kind, even though he never went on to pursue further education. And they also thought that he was independently wealthy, which he was for a time. But then the uh, the money pipe uh, began to run out and he uh, began to realise uh, that the inheritance that he had uh, been given was all but frittered away. So we'll take it forward then. We're coming up to 1982. He also, I think it's true, Harry, that he, he like, in, just in terms of what you might call stability or, or some aspect of um, conventional life, he wasn't a loner, so to speak. I mean, he, he was in a relationship, wasn't he? And he had, a, he had a son. This is even coming up to the fateful summer of 1982. Yeah, so in 1974, he ran into a woman called Brenda Little, who was a young uh, woman, uh, originally from Finglas, uh, but who was a, a young woman who was very involved in the arts and kind of the social set and the social life in the city centre. She would have been quite fashionable. He met her and they quickly formed a relationship and moved in together. And the following October, they had a uh, son, and at that stage, he, he kind of withdrew from, I mean, he would have been hanging around a lot of the bars like Bartley Dunn's and the Bailey, which would have had a bohemian set, uh, would have um, been a place where gay people went, uh, very eclectic kind of clientele. 
uh, would have been kind of slightly edgy in the context of Dublin. But once they had their child, Mick, they um, they kind of withdrew from that scene a little bit and began to hang around in other circles. Brenda Little, independently of that, was very friendly with a guy called Paddy Connolly, who was a a, a barrister who was from North Dublin originally and who she met by chance on the streets of Dublin in the early 1970s. They struck up a conversation and then became firm friends. And that friendship lasted for the rest, uh, certainly for the rest uh, of his life. And uh, Paddy Connolly and Brenda Little, they hung around together. They went to films together. They went to opera together. Uh, They frequented city centre bars together. So uh, she remained very friendly uh, with him when she started to go out with Malcolm MacArthur. Paddy Connolly uh, became friends with Malcolm MacArthur by proxy. So he got to know they coupled very well over subsequent years and also their uh, son. So that was um, their domestic uh, setup. Right. So by the time they got to the end of the 1970s, Malcolm's uh, inheritance was running out. I think Brenda knew that uh, money was tighter than it had been, but she probably didn't realise how serious the situation was and how fraught it all was for Malcolm, who seemed to be obsessing about his lack of funds. So in 1982, in the early part of 1982, uh, the couple and their young son, who was then six years of age, moved over to Tenerife to uh, live over there because uh, Maria, it was cheaper and they wouldn't have the same expenses as they would in Ireland. But unfortunately for her, she did not realise that Malcolm was on his uppers, essentially, and that he really had very little money left in the tank and needs to come up with an urgent remedy uh, in which to recover the fortune that he once had. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And then we move it on to Bridie Gargan, a young nurse who was getting a bit of the sun, I think, after her shift in, was it James's Hospital? And suddenly uh, MacArthur comes upon her in the Phoenix Park. And I don't think I'm giving anything away here, Harry, because most people are aware of the, the basic uh, facts involved in this. He attacked her, he murdered her. And then within the next day or so, he, he was down in Offaly, under the uh, premise of buying a gun, he met Donald Dunn, a farmer. Um, Mr. Dunn gave him the gun, ostensibly for him to try it out, and he shot dead Donald Dunn. Two senseless, really awful murders, two people, two young people, lives ahead of them, the whole thing. Was it ever established what his motive was beyond, presumably, some form of petty robbery? Unfortunately, the some form of petty uh, robbery is the beginning and the end of the explanation. It seems very paltry, Mick, uh, when you think about the terrible, terrible price uh, 
that uh, two young people paid for that and two families who were left to grieve forever afterwards. Yeah, so he was in Tenerife and he, he was obsessing about money and he needed to get money quick. He read in the British newspapers about a series of successful IRA armed robberies on banks and post offices and on the pretext of nothing, he decided that, yes, I think I'll become a bank robber myself and stick people up. So he came up with this crazy notion and dangerous, like really terrible notion that he would reinvent himself as a bank robber or as a as a robber who stuck people up. So he hatched a plan to come back to Ireland, to lie low for a while, to change his appearance and then to get a car and then to get a gun and then to start going around sticking people up, getting money off them so that he would have enough money uh, to live. I mean, it was a completely nuts idea, but unfortunately, somehow he had rationalised it in his own brain and had also decided, chillingly, that he would kill, if necessary, in order to achieve his aims. So there was certainly some form of mental detachment there. There was a coldness there. Uh, There might have been some form of sociopathic tendency that had been dormant until then, but came to the surface when his money situation became perilous uh, for him. There might have been elements of a narcissistic personality disorder where, you know, nobody in the world was important except uh, him. And, um, you know, what he did has defied rational explanation for 40 years. So all you can do is try to make suppositions as to, you know, what possessed him to do what he did. So as you said, he arrived home in Ireland. He hid in Dunlira. He made himself up in this ridiculous disguise uh, that instead of making him look inconspicuous and different, made him stand out. And people noticed him wherever he went, including a very perceptive young news vendor who was selling newspapers on the streets of Dunlira. So uh, on the 22nd of July, he went to the Phoenix Park. He had a blue hold-all bag. He was dressed like Inspector Clouseau in disguise. I mean, it was so obvious. Beautiful, warm summer's day. He was wearing a tweed hat, a fisherman's hat uh, with a feather in it, wearing very thick glasses. He couldn't even see through the glasses. They were so thick, he'd have to peer over the top of them. He'd grown a beard. He was wearing one of those military combat jumpers, the ones with the patches on the collars and all on the elbows. And in the bag, he had an imitation gun that he'd fashioned out of a crossbow. He had a lump hammer and several other items as well to carry out his crime. And in his other hand, he had a uh, shovel that he had wrapped in a polythene bag. The shovel was there to bury anyone uh, that he might have to kill uh, along the way. I mean, it was as, you know... It's horrendous, yeah. Chilling, chilling and, and, you know, out of kilter as that. It was crazy and it was beyond rationality. So he ended up killing poor Bridie Gargan in the Phoenix Park making his escape in a very harebrained way and then uh, arriving into Edenderry in County Offaly two days later, as you said, uh, meeting Donald Dunn, going out to look at the gun, seeing the gun being demonstrated, then taking the gun and shooting poor uh, Donald Dunn at point-blank range, leaving him there and driving the car back into Dublin. And it seems that he gave hardly a second thought to any of his victims because it was all about him 
about him getting his car and getting his gun and then going about robbing uh, people for uh, money. So it was just horrendous and it was so outside the sphere of what what normal behaviour would be that people found it extraordinarily hard and still do find it extraordinarily hard to get their uh, heads around it. And the fact that he came from nowhere, I mean, he was a guy who had been quiet, went to school, had gone away to California, hung around with a very small set in Dublin, even though it was a fairly elite set of well-to-do people and lawyers. Uh, he wasn't known. Uh, so, you know, when the Guardi started looking for this very eccentric person who had killed twice, you know, they weren't following any particular known suspect or usual suspect or somebody who would have come to the attention of them before. This was somebody who seems to have just have, he just... Uh, appeared out of nowhere and then after each of the crimes he just seemed to have evaporated into thin air. So, you know, the task was made difficult for the Gordy by the fact that the suspect was such an unusual figure. He was highly incompetent as a criminal and had no logic to anything he did. But what made him so elusive was the fact that he, you know, he, he was just randomly he had just randomly appeared out of nowhere, you know, and it was almost like kind of picking a, a needle out of a haystack as far as the Gordon investigation was concerned, especially in the initial stages. And in fairness to them, they went about their task very well, led by John Courtney, detective superintendent at that stage, a man whom another work I've come across, controversial figure in relation to various guard investigations in the 70s and into the 80s, but nevertheless, in this one, it was real solid police work got them where they wanted to go. They find out he's staying with the aforementioned Patrick Connolly, who had, I suppose, been elevated at that stage to Attorney General. That, of course, introduced the political element. One aspect to it, Harry, that I suppose maybe from today's world, or maybe it even was at the time that you kind of a bit flabbergasted by, was... Patrick Connolly was due to go on holidays and notwithstanding the realisation that his house guest was a prime suspect in these awful murders when, when the Gardaí called, he still decided he was going to head off to New York and continue with his holiday as planned. And I think it was Charlie Hawley got on the blower to him and said, you better get back here kind of quick. Yeah, well, but after a day, uh, his initial phone call with Charlie Hawley uh, had no such outcome. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the the plot of a Harlan Coben thriller, Mick, except all of the, the unreal plot twists actually happened in real life. And I'm sure the people who were, who were experiencing it in real time back in 1982 were probably saying to themselves, I can't really believe that this is happening or did this just happen or did I hear this correctly? And that was another of those stupendous twists in the whole saga that decision by Paddy Connolly to go on holidays, it displayed political naivety on his part. He was well-meaning. He was probably in shock. He said himself he couldn't even begin to describe how dumbfounded he was. But his decision to go on holidays was a shocker and it had huge consequences, not only for him, but for Charlie High. I'll just rewind a little bit. So, yet they what happened in the end is that MacArthur, after murdering the two people, he emerged to try to carry out robberies. And of course, he made a stupid mess of them all. He had no idea. I mean, he would have killed 
Uh, one guy, Harry Beeling, he was an American diplomat who lived up in Kline. He had a very lucky escape. He ran out the door and if he had stayed, it, there's no doubt that, that Malcolm MacArthur would have shot him in order to get money out of him. But eventually, MacArthur ran out of options. He called on the door of his old friend, Paddy Connolly, down in uh, Dawkey, in, in an exclusive apartment development down in Dawkey. By this stage, uh, Connolly who was a very good friend of Charlie Holly's in a kind of a separate compartment of his life, had been appointed Attorney General and was just coming to the end of the first Doyle term. That government, that 1982 Fianna Fáil government was a ramshackle one, Mick. It was hanging on by a thread and it was lucky to have survived until uh, the summer. And the moment when they thought it was safe to get back in the water again, suddenly this uh, emerged. So when the guards, and you, you referred to Courtney, Courtney was very controversial there was the heavy gang allegations and, you know, there was proven evidence of some very unsavoury tactics being used uh, by uh, the people under Courtney's control. And he became a very controversial figure. But in this instance, in this particular investigation, it was probably the best investigation he had during his time as uh, effective head of the murder squad. He had a couple of very good detectives underneath them. Noel Conroy, who, who would become a commissioner, Tony Hickey, who had become uh, an assistant commissioner, John Mahoney, uh, a Cork man who um, who became assistant commissioner as well afterwards, Dennis Donegan, Frank Hand, who died only a couple of years later, Brian Sherry and Kevin Tunney uh, and others as well. So they had a really good team of very seasoned detectives who knew what they were doing. And they uh, they certainly prevented Malcolm MacArthur killing more people. But anyways, he was, he was caught eventually in the uh, apartment of the Attorney General uh, Connolly, as it happened, was due to go on his holidays the next day. It was a very elaborate holiday, Mick, uh, involved going from London to New York, flying by Concord. And a Concord flight at that time probably cost a month's uh, wages, if not more. So it showed you uh, that Connolly was certainly invested in the holiday, was determined that he would go. He rang Charlie Hawley, who had just the previous day arrived down in his island, Boltol of Inishvikalon, and was probably a little bit the worse for wear in terms of he might have had a few drinks taken. Uh, the line was very bad. It had to go through the Ballyferriter exchange. And Hawhey didn't take in the import of what Connolly was saying to him. Connolly was telling him that uh, Malcolm MacArthur had been arrested. But Hawhey didn't really take in that he'd been arrested in Paddy Connolly's flat and probably wasn't told at that stage that there was also the shotgun, Donald Dunn's shotgun, was also recovered in the flat. So he w- wished Connolly a, a bon voyage. It was only the following day, the Saturday, when his own officials and Bertie Ahern and others managed to make contact with Hahi that he uh, realised, you know, that this was far more than what he understood the previous night. And then he began frantic efforts to bring Connolly back from his holidays. Uh, Connolly was initially reluctant to come back because he was already on his way. But when he got to New York, he was absolutely mobbed by reporters there uh, who were very aggressive indeed. I think at that stage he realised, you know, that the rational thing and the sensible thing would be to return home. And he returned home and was subsequently told that he'd have to resign, even though, you know, he had no idea that Malcolm MacArthur was a murderer. But his very connection with Malcolm MacArthur essentially, you know, drew him and also drew the government into the whole uh, picture. And needless to say, no social media back then, Mick, if social media had been there, uh, it would have gone stratospheric, but it didn't uh, prevent, uh, the absence of social media didn't prevent a whole raft 
of conspiracy theories and they just took fire that summer that the there was an elite government that was trying to hide something, uh, that there was some kind of an affair between Malcolm MacArthur and Patrick Connolly, that there was a homosexual ring at the centre of government and it just went on uh, from there. So the story was kind of taking on its own momentum at that stage with theories and rumours spreading like wildfires. So after Connolly resigned, Hahi decided uh, the following day that he told a press conference in which everything would be explained. And he did explain everything and he used adjectives to describe, you know, the unbelievable events that happened. He grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre, unbelievable. He used all of those four adjectives during the course of the uh, press conference. They subsequently became the acronym GUBU, which was coined by his arch enemy, Conor Cruz O'Brien, which forever became associated with Charles Haughey and the kind of politics that he pursued and prosecuted uh, during uh, his uh, life. And he also made the faux pas during the press conference of congratulating the Gordi for having caught the, the right man. And of course, that was uh, potentially prejudicial to any criminal trial that was going to follow. Some people believe that he had said it deliberately uh, to queer the pitch, as it were, or to muddy the waters and to prevent Malcolm MacArthur from being prosecuted. It was a slip of the tongue, nothing more than that. But in that kind of febrile atmosphere, Mick, anything seemed to go. And on and on, the um, the controversy raged right up to the trial. And then when the trial happened, a nolly prosequia, no prosecution was entered for Donald Dunn, which was a huge injustice and made his family feel rightly aggrieved and uh, hurt to the core. And they uh, waged a fruitless campaign for many years to get that decision overturned. And nobody could really satisfactorily explain why the DPP had agreed to enter only one murder charge rather than two when it was clear that Malcolm MacArthur had had murdered uh, both victims, you know, and would have been convicted by a jury if the case had gone to trial. There's no doubt about that either. Even the defence lawyers uh, seem to concede that from a very early uh, stage. And the, the other fallout, obviously, in terms of the political fallout, I was actually at um, the occasion when your book was launched. It was launched by Bertie Hearn. I just thought what, something that was interesting in what he said that evening was he, he was going through the narrative, not as eloquently as you there, but he was skipping through it. But he made a point. He said, Charlie Ha, he was blamed for everything in those days. Now, taken into account, Bertie would have been an ally of his at the time and might be looking at it through those glasses. Nevertheless, I, I think it's fair to say that this thrown into the mix of all the other things that were surrounding Hahi, did it do him any political damage, irrespective of the fact it had nothing to do with him whatsoever? It did, and you're right. I mean, Hahi had... You know, for, for, for once, perhaps in his political career, he had no case to answer in relation to the political charges that were put on him. You know, it was. He described it as a grotesque mischance. It was all these series of horrible coincidences that had happened that had led to this huge, sensational controversy and scandal. But the blame could not be laid at, at his door. Now, he did make a couple of mistakes. He probably, you know, shouldn't have allowed Paddy Connolly to go on his holidays um, and he also made a mistake in, in during the course of the press conference. But in the context of, of all that happened, they were relatively, 
you know, minor uh, uh, events and blame couldn't really be attributed uh, to him. But the problem for him is that there were lots of other things for which blame could be attributed to him. So this kind of fitted into that kind of pattern of behaviour and the acronym that O'Brien used for that, GUBU, uh, became, you know, a kind of a handy fit uh, for all the other kind of shenanigans and chicanery and plotting and, uh, you know, Ishkif uh, Vihalov that Hahi was up to during the course of his career. So unfortunately for him, the GUBU acronym uh, stuck. I mean, there was plenty that happened around that time for which he could be blamed uh, from the allegations of personation on the very on the very day of the election in 1982 to uh, the more serious uh, phone tapping allegations that emerged at the end of that year uh, when Peter Murtagh broke the story in the Irish Times about the phones of Geraldine Kennedy and Bruce Arnold being tapped at the behest of the Minister for Justice, uh, Sean Doherty. The big question there, of course, was, was Hahi aware that the phones were being tapped or wasn't he? Ten years later, Doherty came out and said he was aware. Uh, Hahi denied it. So that has become one of those kind of perennial uh, questions of debate. Did Hahi know, as a point of fact, that the telephones were being actually tapped? Yeah, I have to say, Harry, it, it is a fascinating tale and it is definitely a, a tale of its time uh, politically. And then when you throw in individuals like Malcolm MacArthur, he, he did some horrendous crimes with the mere profile of the man. It's fascinating from that point of view. And of course, Charlie Hay, who was the major figure in politics at the time. I'm always very interested in that kind of um, conjunction between politics and crime because they do, in various guises, they do kind of come together more than you would think. I'm a big fan of of Robert Harris, who writes these kind of counterfactual novels, uh, which seem to kind of look at big political events and the implications of big political events and uh, tends to graft crime onto it in the middle of it to kind of give you a kind of a murder mystery story. So this was kind of one of those once in a lifetime uh, situations where where, where it happened in reality, uh, where you had a kind of a murder mystery story grafted onto a huge political scandal uh, that happened at the time. And I think that's what what, what made it so compelling uh, for me as a narrative and as a uh, as an episode. Absolutely, and as I say, Harry, compellingly put together by your good self as well. The Murderer and the Taoiseach by Harry McGee, published by Hachette Books. Folks, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Harry, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mick. A pleasure as always. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Stay by the wall, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> 